night or day, who can say? First sips of coffee, that counts for something. That's gotta be what life is about. Not sipping coffee, but sipping coffee is sort of what life is about. Good afternoon, Stan. Hey, Marshall. How are you? I'm glad to be here on the Draftsman Podcast, having not seen you for over a month. I'm glad to be here with you, Marshall, as always. <laughs> I'm in a new space today. Actually, old space. This is my studio. You sure are. I've never seen you in this space before. Is that our draftsman sign behind you? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like coming into the studio to record today. Wow. There's nobody here. Yeah. It's like the safest place to be right now. <laughs> I guess it is. Yeah, it's been abandoned by everyone contaminated. Yeah. As you can see, these are just Proko sketchbooks that I'm leaning the, the sign on. Oh, yeah. That's kind of precarious. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole story. You got a concrete wall behind you, which in earthquake-prone Southern California territory is probably good and solid. You're safe there. It's just that those uh, sketchbooks are all you're relying on. The sketchbooks. I have 2,000 of these in the other room. Wow, and you, you drew two, you filled 2,000 sketchbooks? Oh, yeah, I filled all of them, yes. What's new with you? What is new with me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know what you're hinting at. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, Melissa's pregnant. That is a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. She announced it actually just a, a week ago, so some, some people probably know already, but um, yeah, she's actually due really soon. We've kept it a secret for a while. You kept it a secret from me. I just found out. I thought I told you. I swear to God. I told my uh, the rest of the, the crew here probably like four months ago. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> and I thought I told you at that same time. Oh, man. Well, this is, this is big news. So, you've got another, another baby on the way. Yes, sir. Very soon. It's a girl. A girl. Yeah. I'm excited. So, you're going to have the spectrum of uh, human experience from childhood on. I, I guess so. Boy and girl is the spectrum. Well, it's, uh, I, yeah, we're, I've always understood it as a spectrum. All of this is being re-examined. <laughs> it uh, is. Well, congratulations on this yeah. huge expectation. Thank you very much. Yeah, and so now... You know, we I have between six to six to ten weeks or so before I have to go on paternity leave, or before I get to <laughs> before I get to relax a little bit from all this work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, you'll just be taking it easy, sipping wine, stick a little nap. No, um, but yeah, that that means we have to record the rest of the year's podcast in the next uh, six to ten weeks. How, how is Melissa doing? She's doing fine. She's pregnant, Marshall. Yeah, she she's going through pregnancy. I know. How's Cooper <laughs> yeah, doing? Cooper's great. Yeah, he. I mean, you know, it sucks that he can't hang out with other kids right now, but you know. Oh yeah. He he has no idea. So uh, he calls me his best friend. Uh huh. And then I feel really good about that, but then at the same time, I'm a little sad. Yeah. It's like, oh man, <laughs> I want you to have other best friends. Yeah. But I'm glad to be your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good news. Yeah. So, we aren't going to do podcasts during uh, mat uh, paternity and maternity leave. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to do anything except relax. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that means we'll, do, we'll, we'll just gang up on doing as many podcasts as we can and cover everything we can. And, yeah. And you'll get them bit at a time. Yeah. We, that means we just have to work a little bit hard before I go on vacation. All right. Well, so, what, do you what are we talking with? about? <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> kind of. Um, let's talk about 
separating the art from the artist. Why? Was that a question from one of our audience? It was actually. Hold on. Give me one second. It was a tweet. I want to hear the question. Yeah. So, uh, my team and I are on Slack all the time and we, I forgot who it was, but I think it was John. He put this tweet from one of our followers into the, into the Slack chat and we just started talking. Everybody, everybody had an opinion about it. So, I thought, hey, well, this is going to be a great conversation for the podcast. Um, so, the tweet comes from Audrey Does Stuff. What do you do when you find people in art with many traits you'd like to learn from, but the people themselves are terrible. Can you really separate the art from the artist? That is a good question. That is a sincere and uh, uh, an important question and one that's been around for a long time. It's what about when bad people make good art, when the person who designed the very best village festivity designs happens to be the most abusive member of the village. Uh, what do you do when that discrepancy comes in? And that was in response to the art parents episode? Yeah, because I guess, I mean, it's related to art parents because Audrey maybe likes the art of some artist, but then when she researched the history behind the artist, she found a lot of traits about that artist she doesn't like. And so, now does she study this artist? Is it possible to separate the bad qualities and learn from the good qualities? Um, I, I guess that's the general topic is like, do, do the art parents you choose have to be good people? But there were no specific names mentioned. No, that was the, it's a very open-ended kind of discussion, but it's a pretty specific question though. It is. It's, it is. And there are, are ones that have been coming up even in the last few months. Oh, there's always artists coming up of all, all art forms too. Actors, musicians. Oh, well, right now, yes. Uh, and there's, there's part of what I would question with this is, what about when they're dead? Uh, does that make any difference if the harm they did was in the past or in the distant past uh, with a person who is working right now? Uh, and it may make no difference. I, this is a question worth exploring around. Do you mean that the thing that person did that was bad was in the past and now they've changed? Or do you mean that that person lived a, while, a long time ago and now is dead? Well, now that you mention or it, both. <laughs> you, now that you mention it, you take one part of that question and you start to split it into uh, another couple of questions. <laughs> There's so many questions. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unpack here, Marshall. There is. I'm trying to figure where to start. Well, I'd like to know your general take on this first. Let's start with the general idea. Do you think, generally, it's possible to separate the art from the artist? Stan? <laughs> the pause. Come on. I think both. I think that if you, if you don't separate the art from the artist, the more you know and the more you research, the more you'll be left with very little. There comes a point where you have to say, I will still say that I live in this country in spite of what this country has a history of doing. I will still go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, even though it was founded by and made possible by an, a totally awful person. Uh, there comes a point where you could hardly do anything if you didn't make some such separation, yet at the same time, we can't always separate the art from the artist because it's just, it's too much. It's too close, it's too, it's too abhorrent. And so, I think anyone would, if they're going to have a discussion, we, we could end the discussion. Yes, you can. You can separate the art from the artist. Next question. Or, no, you can't. Whatever the artist did, we have to hold them accountable and also uh, uh, project it into the art. I don't think it can be that simple. And so, that's why this is something, as you said, would, would unpack. And I, I have not given this a lot of thought. This is something that I have fewer answers for 
then I have questions. I've got a number of questions. In fact, of all of the things I think that we've done on this podcast, this is the one where I think that I have the least to offer and the most to learn from. Really? Interesting. Well, then let's just have a conversation and explore without getting firm on any beliefs, although I probably am pretty firm on my belief on this. <laughs> should, we, should we start with you then? Should we start with what you say so we've got something uh, that's strong enough in conviction? How about this? I'll, I'll, I'll choose a side. Okay. And you prove me wrong. <laughs> but we won't argue. We will, we will have a friendly discussion, Marshall. You with your arguing. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I would like to point out that the question was about learning from the artist. It's not about enjoying the artwork of that artist. I think that's a very important distinction here because we're talking about art parents. We're not talking about role models. We're not talking about like we're not talking about life role models. And we're not talking about artists that you just enjoy listening to, enjoy watching on TV, enjoy uh, seeing their artwork in a novel that you're reading or whatever. Um, we're talking about learning from them as art parents. That's a very big difference. Huge. For example, I'll bring up a Michael Jackson. Okay. Right? I'm pretty sure that a lot of musicians in the past several decades have taken Michael Jackson as their art parent. They've studied him. A lot of dancers study him. They learn from him. They get better because they learn his way of doing things. But does that mean they all end up doing the bad things that he did or that they even kind of uh, learn a little bit of that from them? from him? I don't think so. I think that if you're trying to study an artist, you can separate the bad things that person does in, in his or her personal life and just simply study their technique or their philosophies on creation or wh whatever it is that you feel this person is strong in. And you can just focus on that thing. Okay. With Michael Jackson, it happens to be the way he dances or the way he sings or the way he, you know, writes melodies or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Before I move on, do you have anything to, to say about that? Yes, you, you immediately bring up a dis another distinction in here of how we sort through this, and that is what harm does it do to study someone who is reprehensible in one way? and admirable in another, what harm does it do? Uh, and your response to that is that I don't think that person's going to pick up this, this celebrity, this artist's bad qualities by studying their, their technique. But I'm going I'm to keep us on this. I'm going to keep us on this for a few minutes. Okay. It could. And here's how it could. Sometimes a person's... Uh, personal corruption, their individual corruption, comes through their art. And so, I think we need to make a distinction between the bad person who creates good art. They may make the most innocuous or even uh, admirable paintings of flowers. They just happen to do really awful things to other people on the side. The paintings of flowers are unlikely to corrupt anybody. But then you have another thing, and that is where the, the attitude or the, the moral bearing gets into the work. One of the most famous examples of this in film history is during the silent era, a film by one of the greatest of the silent film directors, D.W. Griffith. He was changing the world of how cinema, a uh, story was told in cinema, uh, and he did really marvelous stuff, but he did a film called Birth of a Nation, and that film is inarguably racist. And Spike Lee mentions it in his masterclass, that you can make a film that can encourage people to kill other people because of the content of the film. Well, a person may make art that is to be judged for 
or the content of the art. And that, to, I, I think, because as I've been trying to think this through in the last 24 hours, that can get muddled. We're not talking about art that is called into question. Movies or stories that were saying, what a terrible influence this could be on the culture when the Joker came out. I haven't seen the Joker, but I had students on both sides of the issue that liked the movie and that called the movie a really dangerous thing to put out into this culture. Interesting. So that's not about the, the filmmaker as much as it is about the film. And I think that Audrey's question is not about that. It's about what about when there's these paintings that I that love. They're just beautiful patterns and that kind of thing. But when I look into this artist's life, I think you are one of the reasons why the world has been so bad. That's where we're putting the examination uh, onto that. Is that correct? I think so. But the, you do bring up a very good point here. Um that when you're studying someone's technique, you know, you might start to be influenced by their art as well. So, it, there is a danger in studying someone's technique and then not realizing how some of their, you know, general ideas about on life might be influencing you. It depends really on the situation here. And it depends on the art form, on the medium. Oh, that's okay. You, you just brought another thing up. Yes. Stor storytelling versus a painting of flowers, right? Yes. So, one example is, um, let's, let's say business, business is an art form, right? Grow, you know, creating a company. Steve Jobs is admired by a lot of people in his ability to grow a company. Um, and not just that, but a lot of things. But he obviously has had some flaws. He was very strict. He was very mean to people. And somebody studying him, or not him, but his way of doing business might pick up some of those bad things and might think that, oh, well, in order for me to be successful, I need to do that to people. And so, that, form, that art form specifically though, business, is all about people. You know, it, it's different from a painting, creating a painting where the art is about you in your studio with the paints and a canvas. Making a business is an art form where you're controlling people, you're, you're affecting society directly by employing people. <laughs> your brush is your employees in a sense. I mean, that, I, I that's a weird way of saying it, but so that art form. I don't think you, in, in that medium, I don't think you can separate the art from the artist. Yeah. Um, and is that what you were saying? That's kind of what I got out of it. Yeah, yeah. And the, tr the trash truck is coming in here. I don't hear it. It's okay. okay. We love the trash truck okay. by, by now, Marshall. Okay. <laughs> it's a character on the podcast. <laughs> it's a character on the podcast. <laughs> it's Wednesday who's, afternoon. Whose timing is like the kid who comes in and hears what dad's saying and says, dad, you're an idiot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and what, what can you say? But there it is. There it the is. Trash trucks and right behind me. So go ahead, be prepared. We're happy that the world is, is happening out there right now. Yeah. Garbage out, garbage out. Uh, yes. Steve Jobs is an example of someone who when I first heard, I don't know that much about Steve Jobs, but I do know that some people have quoted what he has said to people. And I had to conclude, this is a man who is insensitive to other people's feelings, which means that if you're going to work for him, that is something that is probably not going to change. That's going to be a, a given with that territory. Should it be that way? Probably not. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I do understand with business that your art form is managing people and he had an abusive vibe about him for people that he was impatient with, uh, but it, it was he was all justified in his view and in other people's view because it was about the product for the consumer. And apparently, yeah. that is not continuing to happen at that company. Yeah. And I don't think Steve Jobs was a horrible person like, you know, the what... Um Audrey said in, in her tweet, well, she didn't say Steve Jobs was a horrible person, but she said when the artist is a horrible person. I don't think Steve Jobs was a horrible person, but this is an example where 
it's going to be very hard to separate the art from the artist and you might pick up on some of the bad traits. It's going to be very difficult not to. And if every person who's building a business started making, you know, trying to model their business around how Steve Jobs did it, I think, uh, you know, employees would be very in a worse place. <laughs> this this reminds me of when we were younger and so many of our most looked up to people were rock and roll musicians and how when we started to find out more about them, our parents really didn't like that. But it didn't bother us. In fact, we kind of thought, wow, that's edgy that they are mm. that way. They do these things and these things and these things and they, I think they were culturally. Uh, a bad influence because we could not separate their their bad qualities from their good qualities. But but again, you're talking about consuming the music. Yeah, you're not talking about I'm a musician and I want to study about how this person plays the guitar. Right. You looked up to these musicians. You they were your uh, what do you call them? Your cultural leaders or something? Yeah, What's the they, were, word? they were adopted art parents. <laughs> yeah, well, not just art parents. They, they were, were like your parent. They're like your right. big brother. Right. Art parents are parents who are influencing your art. <laughs> um, but like I said, there sometimes your art can be very difficult to separate from the artist that you're studying. Okay. Okay, this, may, this reminds me of an article from about three years ago in the LA Times that was an interview or conversation between Justin Chang and Lorraine Ollie about, they are film critics for the LA Times. And it was about all of these, these disgraced celebrities and what do we do with their movies. They had insight in that article. Let me mention some of the things that happened at the beginning. Two, two things. One is that Justin started the article by pointing out that as film critics, we consume and we process screen entertainment and that we try to keep a pure and sophisticated view of that it's about the movie, not about the maker of the movie, but that you can't always do that. Sometimes it becomes about the maker. And he mentioned that the, uh, the job of the critic is, in his view, easier than sorting out the question that we're trying to sort out here. Here was one of the insights I remember from it, that when it's a writer or a director or someone who is behind the camera, Oh, a producer. Uh, the producer, most people don't even know who produced the movie. They know the people in front of the camera. But when it's an actor who is in front of the camera, it becomes more difficult to separate the person from the roles that they play. And he used Kevin Spacey as an example in particular, that yeah. Kevin Spacey, I think he said, leans into his creepiness which means it's going to be easier to watch him in those roles than it is for someone who is going to personify their wholesomeness when you know otherwise. So yeah. again, they are shining a light on the fact that when you look at this, it starts to become nuanced. And apparently, being a film critic for the LA Times is easier than yeah. sorting out this issue. We talked about Kevin Spacey in the Slack conversation with my team. Um, one of my team members, I don't know if she wants me to name her, so I'll just keep it anonymous. Um, she was a very big Kevin Spacey fan. Um, and when all the stuff came out, she found it very difficult to watch his stuff. Right. Um, even though his roles are all creepy. She, it's still very difficult for her to watch it. She just, it yeah. just doesn't, it, it, it's not the same. Because sometimes, you know, when you're watching a, uh, a show or a movie and the character is creepy, you still really appreciate the actor. Yeah. For 
doing such a good job in playing a creepy character. And you might fall in love with an actor like Kevin Spacey for, for because they're so good at doing that. And you're like, oh my God, that's great. And then you find out that, wait, that creepy character, that's actually, he's just really creepy. <laughs> it's like, oh man, so he's not like doing anything special. He's just being his creepy self. Um, so, it loses that love for the actor and then the movies just aren't that cool anymore. So, this right? is an example where it's almost impossible to separate the art from the artist. This is a point from consuming where- consuming the art. It's, it's impossible of consuming. But in my opinion, actors can still learn from Kevin Spacey. Do, I mean, do you think so? Yes. Or will they kind of take on some creepiness to them? Well, that's a question that we can't answer. Okay, I guess so, yeah. This is where I think we're headed with where we go with this, if we've got any kind of sense. What do you mean? What's that? Which is that every, every individual is going to have to examine their own tolerance or allergy to what, what they can what they can take, what they, what they, this, I, for, for one person to say, no, I don't want to deal with that. I have to cut that one out of my lexicon because it doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't belong. I don't want to ingest from that fountain. And then another one can say, I can take what I need from it. Mm -hmm. And I think when a person goes to either of those extremes, I'm going to cut everyone out of my lexicon that has done bad, and I'm going to completely ignore the context and and uh, person. That those are the extremes where you run into the most trouble. So again, it, the the issue is an issue of discernment and balance, and the difficulty of trying to figure this out. And also, it may have something to do with what our goals are. Yeah, everybody has a a line that the artist. It's like, did this artist cross the line, in my opinion, of being a terrible person or is this still okay enough to study? Yeah. Some people, that line is really far away. They could be murderers and, hey, I'll study their paintings, whatever. They're really good at color. Um, so I, I would like to think that I'm someone who can separate and can just focus specifically on studying the color of this artist and and then i i was thinking okay well let's let's examine this can i how far is my line so there there's then there's an example of like uh and this isn't real but you know dwight schrute from the office mm -hmm. so he studied hitler for public speaking <laughs> I mean, th th this is a show, it's The Office, but he, you know, he, you can study Hitler and for public speaking. He was a good public speaker. It's the reason he got so big, right? Like, he obviously is a horrible person, but he had skills. But then I thought to myself, like, would I actually be able to study Hitler to get better at public speaking? And I don't think I would be able to. I don't know. Like, like I, I, it would be such a distraction to me. Yeah. That I would just be like, ah, forget this. Like, let's just go somewhere else. And so that's kind of where the line is for me is like, you know, mass murder, probably. <laughs> but yeah. Boy, that's one that even just bringing up the subject is, is, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously it's not a laughing matter, but it's, where's the line for you? You know, you, you, it is very individual, you know, with some people, even Steve Jobs, just being mean to people, that's yeah. enough. It's like, oh, I don't want to study Steve Jobs because he's mean. Let's take the example of Hitler in public speaking, because uh, that is the kind of thing that I wouldn't touch unless it was in a context with people who were educated enough to say, let's look at the history of rhetoric, the history of public speaking, the history of how people persuade groups, and from an objective lens, categorize what went on during that. That can be very insightful. There can be a lot to be learned from that. There can be a lot to be learned from that for what's going on in the political landscape of your life right now, because history repeats itself. And so, to not study it could be more dangerous 
than to study it. And But I, I would do it in a context. Don Richardson, my teacher, before television, I mean, he was born in the early part of the 20th century, and he said that when before television they saw newsreels of Hitler, and they saw him screaming. This is a newsreels where before you watched the movie, they had something that was like uh, a news program. They saw him screaming, and he said that he and his friends, his Jewish colleagues, looked at him and said, that guy's crazy. Nobody will ever pay attention to him. And they had, they had no idea what would come in the following years. That to me is historically interesting to think that that person is, is too over the top to be effective and then to see that they are effective. That would be worth a study. And also the ethical issue of what is it that he did that was effective? Is there anything in that that could be used for good? Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's what I'm saying is that I would like to think of myself as someone who would be able to take those lessons of someone's skill and use them for my own purposes, yeah. which are not for the same purposes they use them for. But the, the Hitler example is like, I don't think I would be able to. It's too much of a distraction. One thing I would do is what we're starting to do even right now. What's that? I would not do this alone. If I mm. was going to make any kind of a study of someone who was so objectionable that I'm trying to extract lessons in craft, I would want to do it in the presence of people whose lives have been affected or would be closer to the negative effect of that than if I were to just be sorting this through, uh, through this on my own. Otherwise, why? Because my, my experience of the world is a narrow and privileged experience. And I do not have the insight that people around me have that can say, well, let me tell you what it would be like from my point of view, with my ethnicity, and with my gender, and with my uh, station in life. And those are the people who will round out what can be learned when studying someone really objectionable. There's a point here that you're bringing up. So, you're saying you have to talk to someone who would be affected by these bad qualities of the artist. To me, that would make it more difficult for me to be able to separate those bad qualities from the artist to study the good things about that artist yeah. or the skilled thing. Let's just take good out of this and just say skilled. Um, because now I'm I'm kind of, I'm wearing gl different glasses and yeah. I'm more distracted by the bad things, but I don't want to be. I don't want to take some of that stuff unless I'm studying the historical importance of that, that artist and the bad things they did. You know, it's important to understand why Hitler's bad so we don't repeat that kind of stuff. But if I'm studying public speaking and I, let, let's just imagine I don't know anything about Hitler, right? And I want to study public speaking and I study him and I only observe the, his method of presenting his words or, you know, his, his energy. I feel like I would be able to get better at public speaking. But if all of a sudden I'm learning, I, I put on the, the Jewish glasses here and I, I look at this from the point of view of a Jewish person, it's like, I can't. I can no longer do that. I can no longer just observe his ability to speak publicly and learn from that. So, there, there's two different objectives here. Yes, there are. And the, the reason why we even brought them up in the first place is because there's a difference between studying the painting of flowers by an artist who was guilty of spousal abuse. We don't need to know the dynamics of spousal abuse when we're studying that. But as soon as we're studying filmmaking and storytelling and issues that uh, affect social justice, then we complicate this and that's where I wouldn't do it alone because I need to put the lenses on of mm -hmm. other people's experiences Yes, and of course. shut my mouth and listen and learn at this point, which I think is very important uh, for me 
and for my classes. I am finding this out more and more in the last few years and even in the last month that this is a world of complex personal experiences. My experiences are limited. Your experiences are more wide than mine. And that's one of the reasons why I want to offer in bringing up this discussion in the comments. I am interested in what other people have to say about this. And there's a specific way in particular. The lexicon of artists that I teach from is a limited lexicon of people types especially the fact that I spend most of my time in the 20th century and I spend a great deal of my time in the first half of the 20th century and that has to do with the content of the art. Racial stereotypes and gender stereotypes, one of them came up even this week, Stan. I have recommended Andrew Loomis's book, Fun with a Pencil, on this podcast. I have not mm -hmm. looked at that book in about a decade. <laughs> oh no. Oh yeah, I know what page you're referring to. Yes. There's some racist pages in there. Yes. And one of my students pointed out this week in in these were her words. I cannot pretend to I cannot pretend anymore to be uh, that I'm okay with these images. I can no longer oh, pretend that I'm okay with these images. There are offensive racial stereotypes in there. And in the, the first half of the 20th century, popular entertainment is replete with that kind of thing. Uh, less in the second half of the 20th century, but it certainly wasn't absent, and it isn't absent now. Okay, that's why this is an important question to me uh, in, in teaching, what do we do? What do we do with Andrew Loomis? And the first thing I started to do was make a list. One is to point it out in advance, like a trigger warning. Another is to leave those parts out. That's an option. So literally separate, separate it. That's to separate it. Now, I know that when I, when I say that, there's going to be viewers who are going to say, yeah, but, yeah, but that was a part of history and you can't erase part of history. I know, but we're not making decisions yet. We're not taking, we're not erasing history. We're just choosing what we teach our students. Oh, but wait, wait, we're not even doing that. Oh, we're, really? Okay. We're listing options. One is, one, one is okay. to not even mention Andrew Loomis's name again. One is to, to make a trigger warning. The other is to, and that way you can choose. The other is to edit those parts out. Which you do anyway. Yeah, yeah. The, the hardest of all, oh, oh there's, another, there's another option, and that's what some people will do. They'll focus in on those and, and say that it's okay, that there's nothing wrong with this. I have no problem with this. And, uh, and then there's other people who will focus in on it, and they, they'll never learn from Andrew Loomis. And I'm not saying any one of those is right, wrong, or whatever, even though I do feel like some of those are right and wrong. We're listing options, but the hardest option is the one that in response to that conversation, I may devote a year or two of my life to. And that is to take the good of what's in that book and to redo it along with a team of people who represent minority groups, who will respectfully present the exaggeration and caricatures in ways that are going to fix the problem and also uh, salvage the good that was in there because the book has good and bad in it. And trying to really revive uh, the, the, the good in there uncontaminated by the bad is going to be more than having a conversation on a podcast. It could take a thousand hours of, of work or more. So that it, Now, I know I've strayed from the subject as I usually do, but it's because this came up this week and it does relate to this. Absolutely, it does. Not what you do with the man, Andrew Loomis, who may have been a, a good man who was ignorant, as I think much of the ignorance of the mainstream culture at that time uh, was the the bed in which this stuff grows. Uh, 
but it also relates to what do you do with the book? Well, what do you do with the people? And if Audrey had mentioned specifics, this would have been, I think, even a more spirited conversation because whenever you mention specific people in these conversations in a classroom, it is amazing how much some students know about everything about that person's life because they've studied them and even studied them in some cases for their badness. But we're, we're away from the question, aren't we? Yeah, we, we, we are, yeah. I took us a long way away from it, but it was stuff, though, that's been on my mind in conversations. I don't think that any time in my life I have had more conversations about these topics with people who are mainstream culture and people who are minority cultures than I have in the last six months and even in the last two or three months in particular. So it is on my mind, and that's why I brought it up. Yeah, well, I think that, to me... The Andrew Loomis example is proof that you can separate the art from the artist. To me. How do you mean? That maybe not you can. It's proof that I can. Okay. Uh, in many situations, I am capable of separating the art from the artist. I've studied Andrew Loomis very deeply. Not the artist, but his teaching. I've studied his books. I know very little about Andrew Loomis. But I know a lot about what he teaches in his books. Okay. Which is what I was trying to learn. I don't know if he's a good guy or if he is racist. I have no idea. Um, but by studying him, I do not think I've become racist and that I uh, look at w w the, the racist stereotypes in there were Native Americans and black people, right? And Asian Americans too. I have a student who has studied each one of them to know the different categories of stereotypes that mainstream culture put on minorities that they used in comedies and that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think that by studying Andrew Loomis that I've absorbed any of that. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know, but I'd like to say that I haven't. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> you know. Um, so, to me, that's proof that you can. You can. You, not necessarily everybody will, but right. the question is, is it possible to separate the art from the artist? The simple answer is yes, it's possible. But there are dangers. There are dangers and you have there and we've talked about a lot of them. Can you separate the art from the artist? Sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> not. What else about this? I've got a, a, another couple thoughts. I've got an example. And I think that Marshall, you too have separated the art from the artist. Tell me how. I think you have uh, recommended to me uh, biographies about Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I haven't read an, a biography by Benjamin Franklin. Really? But, uh, there's been a couple people in my life who have, who were, okay. were very uh, interested in and impressed with Benjamin Franklin. But Benjamin Franklin, I don't know enough about. Yeah, you go back a hundred years and pretty much everybody is, is a horrible person, you know, almost. Because the culture, it was just different. What was acceptable back then is not anymore acceptable. And so, you know, Benjamin Franklin might have been a good guy back then, but he owned slaves. So, the question comes up, a good guy to whom? Not necessarily to who, but when. <laughs> right. When was he a good guy? The culture decides what, what form of sin is okay. Nobody is free of sin. We all do bad things, but what is too bad? What is too bad to be acceptable today? Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying and here's where we're going. We're going to how wrong is wrong. Right, exactly. And that how is dependent on where, when you live. Now, that is a debatable question. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's immoral to beat the, the people who have no power over me at 12 o'clock, but <laughs> no, at 4 no, o'clock, no. no, it's not okay. Now, wait, wait, but if we, if we take that and spread it out over 100 or 200 years... When the world has changed significantly, yeah. Now, this brings up an even bigger issue. Sorry about this. I'm sorry about this. It brings up a bigger issue. It's, it's that is morality relative? Okay, that's, that's a good... <laughs> There are, there are, I can argue both sides. And right now, I'm inclined to argue that morality is absolute. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I totally see your point now. Yeah. But then in that case, if we assume that it's, it's, it's absolute and no matter when you live, it's the same, that means, Marshall, you and I are probably horrible people. 
a hundred years from now. Yeah. 200 years from now. We're doing something right now. That's horrible. People will see the sins of this culture and they will be astonished yeah. that they tolerated that. And I think that's what's happening in the cultural revolution right now is that people have been observing the sins of this culture for a long time and saying, no more. And when you look at the horrible history of this country, there is one thing that's been interesting is that it has been moving in a direction on some issues to where we are shocked by wrongdoings that were tolerated culturally at one time and that we will we will be shocked a hundred years ago that we were still as tolerant of wrongdoing as we are are now and cultures are blind everybody has blind spots and uh right now we can't know well we can we're learning what some of the blind spots are but we can't know what all of the blind spots are so this is what i this is why this conversation is difficult because it's between us and we've got very limited experiences of what it would have been like to be there 100 and 200 years ago from the point of view with the people who had the power and the point of the people uh, view of the people who did not in fact i want to recommend something this has been something that's been uh, has affected my thinking a, a lot recently i'm not done with the book but there's a book called the people's history of the united states by howard zinn and just the first chapter, if you have at all an open mind where you say, I just will read the first chapter because Marshall recommended it. That book, the, the author of it, takes an attitude that is the attitude that I want. It is to not pretend like the bad didn't happen, to not whitewash, and to not justify, but also to not throw everything out that was in any way associated with it. There's an attitude like that in Howard Zinn's uh, approach to it. Yeah. Now, all of that was to say that there are things that might have seemed right at the time, but it didn't make them right. It just meant that they were blind to it and it was just taken for granted that this is okay. I, I agree with that. I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of it in the form of, you know, who do we choose to study from? Who's good and who's bad enough to ignore? Let's go back to Audrey's question. Yeah. So when you think of it that way, you're ignoring the time period and you think being good or being bad is, is not, it doesn't depend on time. Then nobody back then is going to be worth studying. So you can't, I don't think you can do that. You have to ignore bad qualities about people when you're studying people because everybody does bad things. It's all relative. You know, a thousand years from now, when everybody's eating only synthetic food, they're going to look back at us and say, oh my God, they ate lettuce. That's a living creature. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating, but who knows? <laughs> seriously. No, seriously. I could see a world where that's a thing a thousand years from now, yeah. where any living creature should not be consumed by any other living creature. And I, and you, Marshall, consumer of yogurt, are a horrible person and if people back then won't be able to separate those things that to them is not okay they won't be able to learn all the amazing things you do have to offer okay all the wisdom that you carry they won't be able to learn from you and not being able to learn from people because of the bad qualities i think is a weakness and everybody has different degrees of that weakness. When it's at its extreme, I see it as a weakness. On either one of them, I see that there's a problem. Is we're, we're, we're being too simple. Yeah. There's probably a point to where, where once you cross a certain point, it actually starts becoming a strength. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's like a, it's like a gradation. Hey, you just, you just mentioned the gradation thing. There's a, that's an interesting thing because I was making a list of options of what to do with fun with a pencil. And that specific book, because that's the book that I know that there, that has a problem. Uh, I left out one of the areas of, of the gray area, and it's what Whoopi Goldberg did in her introductions to the reissues of the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, and it was not to justify, it was to contextualize, which is what you've been talking about, is to put this in context, and she said it was wrong then and it's wrong now. Uh, but she let us see two things that I thought were interesting. One is that these 
racist stereotypes that were in those Looney Tunes cartoons were taken for granted by the mainstream culture as okay. They weren't taken for granted as okay, as I now know, by certain grandparents and great-grandparents of students of mine. Uh, so she mentioned that, that this is something we as a mainstream culture see more clearly now. She also mentioned another thing, that this is what Justin Chang and Lorraine Ollie mentioned in that, that LA Times article. By the way, that LA Times article, that is worth reading about what we're talking about. It, they, they brought great insight to what happens when movie stars and directors and producers uh, are disgraced. But back to the issue of Warner Brothers. Whoopi Goldberg pointed out that Warner Brothers also did some things right. They supported hiring the first black animator, Frank Braxton, and they supported June Foray, the great voice actor, to stardom. Walt Disney did some things wrong, and everybody knows that. And he specifically did some things wrong with Song of the South, and uh, the NAACP uh, confronted him on it before he released the movie, while the movie was in production saying, you shouldn't do this, and he chose to do it anyway. Uh, but he did also give opportunities to black actors that benefited them. And so, if you pull the camera up and try to look at it through an objective lens, you'll see that we are all, we all have good and bad things about us, and that this is difficult to sort through. And let, back to Audrey's question, here's what I would uh, mention that you have been mentioning. The metaphor of adopting an art parent might not be the best choice when it comes to Gauguin or Wagner, or some other person who has an Picasso, who has a, a reputation for being awful. You might say, they're not my parent, they're my plumber, and they may be racist and they may be abusive at home, but they fixed my pipes and I learned something about how to fix pipes. Your tree trimmer <laughs> is a great artist. And that tree trimmer on their own time can go drinking with their friends and make all the racist jokes they want, but it's not going to affect your life because all you're watching is how they trim trees and you, you pick up that craft. It might be better to drop the parent metaphor and find another one that can serve you better, which I don't know that I have one to offer besides tree trimmer and plumber. Yeah, I'd have to think about it. If they're not your art parents. Who are they? <laughs> you learn from them. What? Who else do you learn from? My neighbor. My, you, you might learn something from a neighbor. This is a uh, a neighbor who showed me how they they were they were the neighbor who who wreaked havoc in the neighborhood by their Machiavellian tactics, but they really had great organization skills. I think the metaphor has to be: you have to take away the human part of it. Otherwise, you're, you're still saying that this is a person to be studied rather than you're studying just a craft. So, the metaphor has to be something like, this is my book, this is my instruction guide or something, this is my, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, uh, John Houston said about George C. Scott, George C. Scott had a terrible reputation as a person. Don Richardson said uh, this about him, he had worked with him, and uh, John Houston, the director, said, in an interview, while George C. Scott was still alive, he said, I admire George C. Scott very much as an actor, not at all as a person. And you can quote me on that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But that was someone who <laughs> definitely separated, I will hire this actor and put him in front of the screen because they know what they're doing and make the film better, but I don't want anything to do with them. Uh, personally. That was someone who did separate the art from the artist. I think we all do though. I think we're all doing it. It's just to different degrees. That was my point with saying that everybody's bad is that if you, if you don't separate it, you're not going to study from anybody. So, yes, we are always separating the art from the artist. And then there comes a point where we can't. Exactly. And it's left up to an individual. Yeah.
Hey, I would recommend a story. This is something that would really get you thinking about it because the answers are not as important in this case from us on this podcast as the questions. And there is a science fiction story that's very short. You can read it in 15 minutes by Ursula Le Guin called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis. The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis is a story that gets you wondering about your own responsibility, your own role in playing a part in a bigger machine, a culture, uh, a profession that has one thing about it that is so reprehensible that the responsibility goes down onto each individual about what you do with it. You cannot change the system, uh, certainly not in a day. The system is really big and entrenched. And you as an individual, though, have a responsibility. We, we as individuals have responsibilities to, to play our part in it. The best we could do, Stan, today was that we brought this up because Audrey wanted to know. And whether we solved anything, we certainly started a conversation. I bet we'll get more comments on this than most of the stuff we put up. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I think if we if we ask people to comment, then we will get more comments. Yes, and keep them <laughs> keep them thoughtful and and not reactionary. Yeah. One of the things that has changed me more than anything else in the last decade and even in the last few months has been students who are respectful of more than one side to this, but are coming down on a side to say, let us consider this and do it in a way that I can learn. It's very difficult to learn from someone who punches you in the face. You can learn to get out of the way. But when a person says, come, let us reason together and see how we should all change, or how maybe not we should all change, but some, some of us should change, that is something I respond to well and that I, I want to embrace this. What do we do with the artists? What do I do with this, this collection of artists who sometimes I would not recommend that you go read their Wikipedia entry or you'll never learn from them? Yeah. What, what do you want people to comment? What criteria do you use to decide whether you will learn from an artist or not? Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Another one would be, where is your line of how bad a person could be? But that's not as useful of a question. <laughs> and it's also theoretical. I mean, if, yeah. we, if we were, we could have mentioned many more names about people that we've cut out of our lives that I will not laugh at that comedian's work ever again, or even pay attention to that comedian's work because of what I now know that I did not know. And that in a matter of a few weeks, everything changed in perception. Uh, yeah, we, we could use a lot of specific instances. Uh, you know, there was a quote, it's something like this. We must separate the art from the artist, or we'll narrow down the number of artists that we can study from and might end up just with our own family members and not grow in our art. But yet, at the same time, we cannot pretend that the artist's conduct does not matter. That's what Justin Chang and Lorraine Ali brought up in there. It, it is a balance. Whichever, yeah. wherever we're going to go, and our dislike of one side can often lead us to uh, lean too far the other way. So it's a balance that will be in our conversations and in our awareness in, in the coming months and years. That, that silence means we're done. I guess we're done. Well, next time we have a special guest again. One of your students, kind of, yes? Knight? Kind of. You want to sell her to us, Marshall? Why, why should they listen to the next episode? Knight is a 22-year-old artist who has recently had some commissions with 
big and influential companies and whose trajectory toward becoming a professional, I got to watch from a distance over about 15 years. And I think this might be encouraging to you. I'm excited to meet her. Okay. Thank you guys for tuning in. Yes. I'm looking forward to reading all the comments on this one. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know whether I am or not. Yeah. Oh boy. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. See y'all. Okay, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.